Luke chapter 5 for our consideration this evening. Um, we want to read the opening 11 verses, familiar, this portion. But I trust the Lord will bless us as we consider it together. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Pay attention in the reading of the scripture. These are words of life and power. Luke 5 verse 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned on to their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Amen. Let us store hearts for prayer just momentarily. Lord, we are so thankful for the testimony that the believer enjoys of thy saving grace, thy sovereign intervention. Thankful that we can testify that our chains (coughs) fell off. Our heart was freed, thankful for that ray that came in and aroused within us that which did not even exist before. And so we give thee praise for salvation, for washing away our sins, for giving us new life. Lord, again, deliver us from taking for granted the most blessed experience any man can ever know. To know our sins forgiven. To know peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, in light of what Christ has done, and at such a cost, we have no we have no alternative but to give ourselves entirely to Him. Help us then to learn from this portion. And may it be applied with power and help and profit not just for tonight, but for days ahead. Make it to be a blessing. And bless this passage again to my own soul. Give us the help of the Spirit now. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of Luke chapter 4, we have it emphasized for us by the Spirit of God through Luke and his writing that the Lord Jesus Christ's primary ministry was to preach the gospel. Look there at the... 43rd verse of chapter 4 
where again he is moving away from where he had been ministering after healing many people and so on. But he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. His primary ministry, though it was not his exclusive ministry, he relieved many of their infirmities and disabilities, yet his primary focus was on the preaching of the gospel. This is important to remember when, again, in various quarters, the emphasis is placed elsewhere. Early in the ministry of Christ, of course, these miracles created a wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel. They gained the, got the attention of the people, caused them to come from all quarters to come and see what was going on and to observe all that was going on. And, of course, then, inevitably, to listen to what he was saying. It paved the way to teach tremendous crowds of people. And that's what we have in Luke chapter 5. And we have this great crowd. You can't say exactly how many there were, but certainly the emphasis of the passage seems to show that there were many, many people. Verse 1, it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he's been pushed there to the shores of the lake. And the multitudes that were there were all listening intently to the word that was being declared by the Lord. And as he does so, he takes time to teach a lesson, to make a point, not just for those that were there, but a lasting impression upon a number of men that were there that would forever change the direction of their lives. And I speak, of course, of Peter and his brother Andrew and of James and of John. We have in these verses... Their call, their call to forsake everything that they knew to be normal life and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And while other Gospels give us something of this call, Luke gives more detail. He gives the context, he gives some of the details that the other Gospels do not. And of course, there may have been reasons for that. I can't say for sure, but sometimes I like to sort of just think upon a little sanctified imagination And what's going on in Luke's mind? How is the Spirit leading this man? Why is it that he details certain things that the others do not detail? How come he gives the context? Again, I can't say for sure, but I know that in all likelihood, by the time Luke is writing this, James is already dead. We have that recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. He's martyred by Herod, and Peter seems to be heading in the same direction, except for divine intervention. And so there's... This attack upon the church, as Luke is writing to Theophilus, their their leaders are being taken away from them. There's the pressure from the Jews, particularly at that time, and then later more widely by the Roman leadership. There's this pressure upon these followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as always, there is the targeting of the leadership. As I say, by the time Luke is penning this, James is probably already dead. And others perhaps as well, we can't say for sure, but certainly there is this attack that's coming upon the leadership of the church. And when you see the leadership of the church attacked and going away through whatever means, there's always then the cry, Lord, raise up the next generation. There has to be. The the lament to see the godly man cease. And then to look and cry, where... Where will the leadership come in the coming generation? So, of course, any godly man 
begins to try and disciple and to help the next generation. And Luke is doing that for Theophilus. He is writing this, and I'm not going to take time to go back to chapter 1 and you read the opening verses, but you see his intent as he lays out everything that he uh, is going to lay out for Theophilus for his benefit and for his good, in order that Theophilus might understand exactly what it is he has come to believe and to have a greater comprehension of the ministry of Christ and then what followed in his second part to his writing in the book of Acts. Luke himself no doubt went through a period of struggle, a time of learning to surrender to the Lord. He was, of course, a doctor, a physician. He had the prospect of a great life ahead of him and prosperity and ease and whatever else may come with that kind of fairly distinctive life that he would have had and a certain prestige that he would have had even in that day uh, being a medical doctor, being a physician of sorts. But he went through a time of struggle. I have no doubt whatsoever he did. He starts to, he's of course converted and, and he starts to be in the mix of the leadership of the church. And when you, you read through the book of Acts, and of course he's writing it all, but when you come to around Acts chapter 16, you begin to see that Luke is included in what's going on. And instead of talking about what Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas are doing, he says, we, we, and he's there. He's involved in the ministry that is going on. And as, a, as, as he becomes more and more involved, traveling around, being kind of like a, a companion doctor to the missionaries and helping them, no doubt, with many of the infirmities. And you can think of all the wounds that Paul had inflicted upon him that, that Luke would have had to tend to and help he is being pulled more and more into the work. And of course every time you get pulled in and there's more commitment required, something else has to give. And it requires this, this sense of surrender, a sense of giving up something that maybe you had your eyes upon in order to give yourself to something else. Luke therefore knows what that kind of surrender looks like. What it feels like to go through that feeling of here's what my life will look like. I'm going to be a doctor. It will go this way or that way. And you have your plan. Your 5 year, 10 year, 20 year, whatever plan. But at the end of his life or close to the end of his life. Certainly close to the end of the life of the Apostle Paul. Luke has become a man who's solely given over to the gospel. In fact the testimony of Paul in 2 Timothy is only Luke is with me. Everyone else has forsaken me. Demas is gone. Others have gone. Others won't associate with me anymore because they see that I'm about to die and you associate with a man who's going to die, then the danger is that you'll be pulled in by that association to the very same end. You also will be martyred. But Luke doesn't care. Luke by this point is sold out. He's there with Paul. He's willing to count the cost and suffer whatever the consequences might be. But again, such a man will therefore then try to influence others and try to instruct the young and help them to, to grasp, look, this is the call of Christ. It is not solely to be saved from your sins. It's not only to be confident that you're going to heaven. It is to give yourself entirely to the whole Gamut of the cause. That is the need. So as Luke writes to Theophilus. Again. Possibly a prosperous man. 
well-to-do, successful, and Theophilus had been converted, wants to know more, and Luke is writing to him, and he includes details then in the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John that certainly would help a young man who's thinking about what it is to be a follower of Christ, and then has this scene put before him that for some people is going to cost you more than just being identified with Christ. You're going to have to give up everything. Your career, your plans. Christ is going to ask for it all. Theophilus no doubt had heard the name of Peter. And Andrew, and James and John, they were heroes. <laughs> These were men who, of renown, men of prestige by this stage, but, but they had humble beginnings. They had their plans and their little life that they were living until Christ one day came and called them to give up all and follow him. Sometimes the Lord, though you may not anticipate it coming, he just puts his hand on a life and he says, no, I want more. And that can be a very difficult time, a wrestling time, a struggling time. Until you learn just to surrender and say, Lord, whatever you have me to do, I will do. So Luke includes these details for the benefit of Theophilus or any man who would read this. And would have their life and have their career and have their family business. But God has another plan for them. Like Peter, the fisherman, family business. Just a normal man and yet he's going to be called into service and... Again, looking back, we think of Peter, the great hero, the preacher on the day of Pentecost, the, the ultimate martyr for the faith. But he was just a fisherman. Christ uses just fishermen. And with all the record of his failures, we are encouraged then to, to just see that God uses flawed men. In fact, he must use flawed men, for there are no other men that exist for the work of God. So, we're considering here tonight the molding of a soul winner. Because that's really, Peter was a soul winner. And that's the emphasis of the passage. Christ says that in verse 10, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. There is this shaping of a man, preparing of a man to be a soul winner, to be a winner of souls. But there's much in this for us all. Much that I think will be helpful for us. And especially when we think about what kind of a man does Christ use in such service like this? Are they men of extraordinary gift and talent and ability and connections? And what you find from a passage like this is that that's not the case at all. It's far from that. It's very simple things that we learn from Peter that while he was flawed, he had these certain characteristics that are revealed in this passage that help us see that's really all it takes. If you have this, you could be used by God. In a wonderful way. First then, such a man who is molded to be a soul winner, he will be obedient to the commands of Christ. He will be obedient to the commands of Christ. You read the first few verses as it sets the scene for us there. And then it comes to verse 3. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, so Christ stops, he 
finishes his sermon, his message, and he turns to Simon and gives this instruction. Launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Now, immediately on the surface, you note that Peter is not, he's not an example of enthusiasm here. His response is one that's filled with skepticism. There's a weariness in his frame, but you can see almost that weariness come out in the language that he uses. Master, I mean, if you can try and just hear, oh, Master, you've toiled all the night <laughs> and taken nothing. And then with a kind of a sigh, nevertheless, thy word. I mean, you've all heard it. I mean, if, if you've seen the children, we've been the children, given a command, given an instruction, there's a, oh, you know, I, I witness it almost daily. <laughs> you give instructions to the children and they kind of sigh and they, their shoulders drop and so on. But off they go with their reluctant spirit. Off they go because, well, perhaps they know the consequences if they do not, whatever the reason might be. But you can see that in Peter. Peter, Peter is not full of enthusiasm or, or, or faith here. Far from it. He has, he's a man filled with disappointment and discouragement. Again, this, this night of fishing was not, hey, let's, let's head out for a fishing trip, kind of like a hobby. This is his livelihood. The existence of he and his family depends upon success when he goes to fish and he goes out and so that's, that's a completely different spirit you go out to do a hobby versus you go out and your whole livelihood hinges on something it's a very different mentality and, and whole uh, uh, way of approach you go out for a hobby you go out to, to enjoy part of it is the whole experience of the, the friendship and camaraderie of those that are with you the time that you spend the conversations that you have all of that's involved and whether you catch anything or not well you know, that's just a bonus. But you enjoy your time. That's, that's not the case here. Peter's livelihood is fishing. If he doesn't catch fish, his family don't eat. So he is greatly discouraged. If you've ever, ever went through a time of economic difficulty, where things are tight and tough, you'll, you'll know something of the discouragement such times can be to the mind, to the body. To the soul. This is Peter. He is a reflection of fallen humanity. He doesn't exhibit joy. He doesn't show forth great faith or hope. He is a picture so often of where the people of God <laughs> far too often are. This is where we are. The Lord gives commands and we kind of say, ah, okay. <laughs> We'll go, I'll do it. But there's no real joy, there's no faith, there's no enthusiasm. We're cynical even at times. Maybe that's you. Maybe your reply to the Lord is he would say, Labor on, child of God. And your reply would be, Lord, we've toiled all the night and taken nothing. There's not even one indication of, of success here. There's been no encouragement 
It's everything that would discourage. There's not even a little, a little glimmer, a little sign, a little token for good as the psalmist requested. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You may apply this in all sorts of areas of your life perhaps. But the primary focus of course is in the work of God. In the kingdom. Because that's where it's all leading to isn't it? From henceforth thou shalt catch men. Forsaking all and following Christ. That's, that's the direction of all of this. So the, the application of the context. What the Lord is doing here. Has in it. The, the mind of, of, of the difficulty. The toil of labor. Especially in the kingdom of Christ. But having looked at all of that. And considering his despondency. And discouragement. And lack of enthusiasm. There's still obedience. And that's the point. That's the little glimmer. That's the silver lining in this whole event. And in the interaction of Peter with the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. I'll do it, Lord. Imagine for a minute, just for a second, imagine that Peter did not obey. He would have missed out on what was probably the most profitable day he had ever enjoyed in his business. He could have said, there's no point. He could have been rude. Lord, your dad was a, your dad was a carpenter. He grew up in a carpenter's. Leave the fishing to the fisherman. We know where the fish are. We know what it's like. We don't need advice from someone who knows nothing about fishing telling us how to fish. Now, you know what that's like, perhaps. You've been there. Someone comes into some little realm where you're, you're an expert or you've been doing something for years and years and someone comes in and tries to tell you how to do it better. And you, you shrug your shoulders, you shake your head, you think, the arrogance, you, you, have no, you have no clue what you're talking about. That could have been Peter. He could have just as well responded in that kind of fashion. He could have just realized, you, you don't know anything about fishing, Lord. You don't know what it's like. You don't know the seas like I know them. You don't know the tides like I know them. You don't know the seasons as I know them. You, you don't know anything. But that's, that's not what we... Thank God that's not what we read. In a sentence, what we learn from Peter is that it's better to be despondent and obedient than it is to be joyful and rebellious. Be despondent and obedient. If you have to obey in that way, better to do that than to have the appearance of joy and decide to do something else. Ian Bounds rightly said, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. But he said better men, not perfect men. God's not looking for perfect men because such men do not exist. And all of us, when we obey, we are like Peter in some form or fashion. We are all very similar. Even in our greatest act of obedience, there are distinct flaws and sins. There are times we do things for the Lord. We have no faith in what we do. 
I'm not entering into it with the vigor of one that believes in the, in the, in the, the, the benefit of this. Someone may stand and give out tracts at the side of the street and evangelize, but they don't actually believe what they're doing will have any lasting benefit. A preacher may preach and have the very same heart, a lack of belief in the very labor that he's involved with. But better to do it, to be obedient, than to run around in a disobedient fashion, regardless of the spirit and the attitude. Christ gave a command, and Peter obeys. He obeys reluctantly, somewhat, not with the spirit that we would maybe want, but he obeys nonetheless. And that's, that's the material point. Christ could have asked the fish to jump into the boat. He could have by a miracle, just filled the boat with fish. I mean, when he fed the 5,000, it was nothing for him just to create bread and fish out of his hands. Out of nothing. But often his means are men. He uses men. He uses flawed men like Peter to accomplish his ends. Why? Well, as Paul puts it, we are labors together with God. 1 Corinthians 3.9 we are labors together with God. God uses men. It's, it's one of the, mystery, the mysteries of the entire work of the kingdom. He uses men. It's, it's amazing. It's stunning. It's mind-boggling. He uses fallen men. Or as that little portion before the Lord would enter into Jerusalem. And he sends the two disciples off to get the, the colt. We read in Luke 19 verse 31. The Lord hath need of him. He hath need of him. He has need of that, that little ass, that coat. So often I read that passage, I think, yeah, that's, that's me right there. That is me. That's just, just a donkey, a coat, an ass. That's, that's me. You're insignificant. You don't have much, but, but the Lord has need of him. He is, he is appointed to use even such means as these for his purposes. Maybe you're such a one who struggles with your own ability and what you can contribute to the kingdom of Christ. You can't offer much, you think. Well, it's not really about what you think you have or what gifts you presume to have. It's just about obeying what the Lord would ask you to do. And in His providence, He places us in circumstances and the call is right there. It's not like you have to hear always a voice from heaven. The call to obedience is often in the providence of our circumstances. A parent doesn't have to ask God whether or not they're to train their children up in the fear of the Lord. If you become a parent or a guardian or you're looking after children in any context, you have. You have the commission. You have the command what to do in such circumstances. Be an example. Instruct this little one in the word of God. The circumstances dictate the call of God for your life. So, this is, this is the first thing. Someone who's going to be used will be obedient to the commands of Christ. They may not always have the right spirit, but they will obey. 
Do you have that obedience? Secondly, he will be humbled by the power of Christ. He will be humbled by the power of Christ. Again, look, verse 6 this time. And when they had this done, they enclosed the great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter struck. In fact, everyone is astonished at what they witnessed. Verses 9 and 10 make that clear. He was astonished, and all they, all that were with him, at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. They were struck, astonished at this miracle. But Peter seems to be struck above them all. He is brought to his knees, he maybe even onto his face, but he falls down at, at the knees of Christ, falls down before him, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. There's no triumphalism here. He's just had, as we've said, the the best day of business he has ever had in his life. He's never seen fish like this dragged in. And so, I mean, you have the best day of business. You could could imagine the natural response is glee and joy and just a kind of, even a triumphalism over what has happened, a, 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 an ecstasy over what he has witnessed. You see it with the sporting people, even those that try to give glory to God when they, when they win, you can see the ecstasy all over their face, the joy that, that comes over them. And they say, I want to thank God, you know, without God this you know, wouldn't have happened, and so on and so forth. But they're not really humble. There's, there's nothing. Why do they get, ascribe glory to God? They haven't really... They don't really sense that God really was there helping them and doing what came to pass. Now Peter, Peter, Peter's not like someone who's just won the Super Bowl and says, I thank God for what, you know, for our win and for his help. And said, No. He is absolutely shocked. And humbled by what he witnesses this day. Being a Jew, you might even half wonder whether there would be a spirit of extortion here. <laughs> Jews know how to be successful in business. You can see that the world over. Largely, they're very capable and, and, and oriented to gainful employment. And, and were he had to have the mind of, of many others, he would, he would immediately be bringing out a contract and saying, Lord, you know, here's a great idea. Why don't we enter into a business partnership here? If you can turn up once a week and do this, and uh, I'll make sure that you're looked after, you'll never want for anything, and so on and so forth. I mean, the carnal mind would, would very easily run there. You see this happen, you mean, well, look, this is a wonderful opportunity here. But, but Peter, none of that even comes close to entering into Peter's mind. In fact, fear grips his heart. That's why the Lord says in verse 10, fear not. Fear not. There's a sense of fear. Is this an overreaction? Is it? Is he overreacting? 
He says, I'm a sinful man. Fear within his heart. I don't think so. I think this is humility. This is a man humbled by truly witnessing the power of Christ. A kind of humility that is greatly lacking today. He is... He feels himself to be the sinner that he is. He feels it profoundly in the presence of Christ. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In the presence of Christ, in such power, in such a witness of power, he's not thinking about some of the things we've considered. He's immediately feeling this weight and sense that he is not worthy to be in the presence of such a one. Is he the only one to feel this way? There's a remarkable parallel to this experience in the life of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. You may know that portion well, but you may turn it up just to refresh your mind. But in Isaiah chapter 6, you have that scene. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and so on. And there Isaiah, the man called to be the preacher of his day. Now he, he's a good man. He's a godly man. A God-fearing man. But that year he never forgot. That year his, he sees the Lord. When the year that, that the king that he looked to, hopefully for, for leadership in the land, when he, when, he, when he looked to him and he disappears, God takes him, he's gone. Then he sees the Lord. And you read down through the passage and the the angels that are there, the cherubim and so on. And he says, what does he say? Woe is me. For I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing the Lord as Isaiah saw him had a profound impact upon his heart. If you asked Isaiah before, are you a sinner? He would have said, sure, I'm a sinner. Of course. But when he saw the Lord and he heard the voices of of the cherubim say, Holy, holy, holy. The contrast between God and in fact, read John 12, what Isaiah saw there was a pre-incarnate vision of the Son of God. He sees, he sees the Son of God and the contrast between his holiness and himself. He says, woe is me. Now if you read the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 5, he has been called to declare, woe, woe to this people and woe to the nation and woe to them. But then the man, the same man is called to see himself and he says, no, it doesn't just apply out there. It's not just woe to them, it's woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. He saw himself as he saw the Lord. 
You know, when you really see the Lord, this, this is the kind of thing that happens. It's, it's unusual. Again, you see such a contrast. He is so holy, and you, you get that sense that you're not. It's like looking at a white sheep. And you say, that's a, that's a nice clean sheep or whatever. It looks clean. And, but then that sheep walks onto a, a field that is covered in snow. And all of a sudden it doesn't look so white anymore. Against the backdrop of the green grass, it looks like a nice white sheep. But against the backdrop of the fresh fall of snow, it looks, looks far from clean. It has this off color. And that's how we see ourselves. We think we're okay. We're with the backdrop of, of the blackness of our day. The blackness of the sin all around us. And, and in such a context, God's people can look at themselves and think, we're fine, we're doing okay. But if we had our vision filled with the impeccable purity of God, then you start to feel your own blackness. And that's why Peter... That's what Peter saw. That's why he reacts this way. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says. Peter says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. It's very similar. Very similar. He saw the Lord. He saw the power of Christ. He saw just not, not just what the Lord did. And this is the thing. He's, everyone else is amazed at what's done. Peter, his eyes turn to the one who did it. He can see the person. His eyes are drawn to the one in whom all this power is sourced. So often our gaze is filled with the circumstances. That's the way we live our lives. Each day we, we just, we're, we're, we're impacted by our circumstances. And we're either encouraged or discouraged by what's going on. And we get joyful when things will go well and downcast when things don't go so well. And the circumstances, they, they, they cause us to fluctuate so easily. But to, but to see, to have our responses controlled by our sense of Christ and His presence. And that, that's why the psalmist so often records what he does. I will not fear, think Psalm 3, I will not fear though tens of thousands set themselves against me round about. Why? He's so filled with a sense of the, the presence of his God in his life. I don't need to fear anyone. What others would be absolutely trembling at the vision of ten thousands all set themselves against one person. Such a person should fear, but not me, because an overwhelming sense of the presence of God That's what Peter experienced. It wasn't just the miracle. It wasn't just seeing all the fish gathered in. It was the sense of who was in his midst. And he was humbled. So humbled. And I'll tell you, there is a need for humility in all of our hearts. Do you see your sin? Do you? Do you really feel it the way Peter felt it? Oh, no, I know you don't. You don't need to answer that. But can you see how there should be an aspiration within our hearts to feel as Peter felt, to be so overwhelmed by a sense of the presence of Christ that we feel something like he felt. To be so humbled. I 
think it's need, needed today, very needed. You see, if the Lord's going to use Peter, he has to be a humble man. And he has to be a man whose gaze is filled with the power of Christ, not himself. <laughs> he, would, he would drift. He would drift from this. He would go into his condition at time of self-confidence and he would step out of the boat and walk for a while and then begin to sink and he'd boast that I'll do all forsake thee, I'll not. And he would have those boasts and he'd get filled with a sense of his own power and ability at times. But here, here he's having a lasting impression made upon him. Peter, you can do nothing. Just humble yourself before me. All oh, that we would see your sin. All oh, that we would feel it. All oh, that we would be humble. With such humility we may serve the Lord. Isaiah 57. Striking words in verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one. That inhabiteth eternity. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And all of that. We, we understand everything up to that point. The high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. All of that makes sense. He's eternal, he's high, he's lofty, he dwells in the high and holy place, of course he should. But the amazing thing is, it goes on and says, with him. How can it be said that anyone dwells where this eternal being dwells? How, how could it be said that anyone is where God is. We may then ask, well, if there is such a one there, what kind of person is there? With him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God walks with people like Peter. For all the criticisms criticisms that could be laid at his feet, Peter was a humble man of God. And he was greatly humbled here. That brings us in thirdly and finally. So we must obey, obedient to the command of Christ, humbled by the power of Christ. But we will also Follow the example of Christ. The person who will be used by the Lord will follow the example of Christ. And so we read in verse 11. When they had brought their ships to land they forsook all and followed him. That's one of the most Christ-like characteristics that you find in anyone. Someone who forsakes everything to do the will of God. It's said of Jesus Christ... Matthew 20 verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Or Paul writes in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So you have that exhortation, have that mind in you. It's not just to be, it's not, Christ isn't just a, a kind of monument for us to look at. We're to see in him. The will of God for our lives. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, here he is, he is divine himself. There's no, there's no, there's no conflict in the fact that he is equal with God. And yet he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the example. Forsake all. Forsake all. And follow him. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. For your sakes, Christian, for your sakes, he became poor. He willingly forsook all. He forsook it all. He came in glory. He's ministered unto, but he came here to minister. In glory, he is fully revealed as the divine, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Here he is cloaked in the frailty of human flesh to become a servant obedient to the death of the cross. Comes poor to make us rich. Sometimes the Lord has to bring men to rock bottom before they will really understand what the Christian life is all about. There they are, puffed up. They have all the wealth that they should ever desire. They have all the provision, maybe even you know, just an abundance. But they don't know what it is to to really forsake things for Christ. And so because they won't learn it through ordinary discipleship and willingness to learn and be obedient, the Lord begins to show them. begins to put his finger on precious things in their lives. They learn what it is, the joy and the glory of complete surrender. Peter, Peter did not hit rock bottom. As we said, that was the best day of business of his life. If ever there was a day where Peter might have been invigorated to really apply himself to the family business and keep going on because things were going well, I mean, it's like any kind of, it's like any, like farmers, you know, not every year is equally prosperous. Your farmers are looking for, 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 for bumper harvests at times that, that carry them through the, 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 the more difficult years. And so here, here's a sign that you might look, here's the providence of God is saying that, 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 that there's this a time of blessing, prosperity, my business is going forward. I might be able to hire more men, maybe buy a new ship and, and advance, the, advance the business. But all that is laid to rest, none of that matters because the Lord gives a simple exhortation again. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. My intention is not for you to become an even more successful fisherman. But to go after souls. And Peter gets the point. Pulls the ships to land. Greatest day of business ever. And he 
wears goodbye to it. Sacrifice. Forsaking all. He had to follow the Lord Jesus. He said goodbye to all the peace and tranquility of heaven. To be mocked, cursed, despised and rejected of men. Become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And this is the will of God. This, this, this is the kind of person that's molded to be a soul winner. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not glamorous. It's not complex. Obedient to the commands of Christ. Simple. You have to obey. Humbled by the power of Christ. Just to be humbled by who he is. Truly know yourself to be the, the worm that you are. The glorious person of Christ. And then to follow his example. Which isn't so difficult once you've had the others. And you learn to obey and you see the glory of Christ. You'll, it's, the logic, it's all logical. You'll, you'll, follow, you'll, you'll follow Christ. You'll see this is, this is the way of life. As a new Christian, I heard from one of the elders of the church repeatedly. Became a mentor. I didn't know him to be a mentor at the time. I, I would never have said at the time he's a mentor, but looking back, that's exactly what was going on. I'd learned from this man do outreach and evangelism with him, listen to his stories from the past and what God had taught him through the years and his own path of service and surrender and simple man. Wasn't educated beyond the age of fourteen. Mightily used. And he used to always quote C.T. Studd. If Jesus Christ be God. And died for me. No sacrifice can be too great. For me to make. For him. And as a Christian. Maybe a matter of weeks old. I thought. That's, that's it. Right there. Nothing more needs to be said. If Jesus Christ be God, that's what Peter realized that day. This is God. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, that's what he came to do. What sacrifice? The logical outcome is no sacrifice can be too great for me to make. The idea that the Christian life can be one haphazardly living according to your own rules, your own desires to drift along and think that I'll take the benefit of eternal life, but I won't offer anything else in return. It's just, it's, it's not in the Bible. It just doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's not there. Constantly the Spirit is drawing the heart of the believer to grasp. Let this mind being you, which was also in Christ, let that the understanding of sacrifice and surrender and service and detachment from this life. Oh, I know we can have our excuses. 
<laughs> Peter could have had plenty of excuses. Oh Lord, my mother-in-law is not well. You know, she, I know she, you healed her and so on, but she, maybe I need to stay at home and take care and have all the different. We always can find excuses. But Peter, James, Andrew, James, and John—they all forsook everything and said, "That's it." <laughs> yeah, our rights—we have no rights. We only have responsibilities. Give ourselves to Christ. Moses went through the whole excuse thing as well, didn't he? Exodus 4. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Oh, we've been there. I can't do it, Lord. I can't do what you're asking me to do. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf? Or the seeing or the blind. Have not I the Lord? I therefore go. <laughs> Again. The Lord. He's, he's tender. He's patient with us. But he's to the point. I made you the way I made you Moses. You are what you are. And all of that. I know. It's, you're not telling me anything new. When I call you to do something. You can't tell me some bit of detail about your life that I don't already know that will all of a sudden make me think, oh, maybe that's not such a good idea after all. When I command, go. Now therefore, go. That's, that's the command for you, for the year ahead. Whatever Christ says, do it. It's like Mary said. Whatever he says unto you, do it. What will he call you to do this year? Perhaps you're yet to find out. But as Jim Elliot rightly said, who sacrificed himself to the cause of Christ, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Peter learned that. And the Lord made him a great and mighty soul winner. The Lord will use you as well. May He use us all. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's all seek His face. As your heads are bowed, trust the Lord has had a word in season for you. A word for your heart, where you are. Maybe the year that has almost come to a close has been one of spiritual drifting. Not really making much advance not doing really what you could be doing for the cause of Christ. Maybe this year there's going to be something the Lord will just put his finger on in your life and say, look, I want you to get involved in that. I want you to do this. May the Lord give you that willingness. May you be captivated by the wonder of who he is as well as what he's done for you. Lord, we do thank thee for such examples as these. Uh, we are always looking for reasons to avoid the responsibility that is placed upon us for the cause of Christ. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We pray, O oh God, that thou wilt make us willing, give us obedient hearts, give us a sense of awe at who thou art, and help us, O oh God, to just follow the example of Christ. Please, Lord. Continue to work in our hearts daily. Sanctify us through thy truth. Make us to be more and more conformed to the image of thy dear Son. Until finally we 
This robe of flesh will drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize. Like McShane said, that it's not until then we'll understand how much we owe. Help us, O God, to serve Thee and to give our hearts for the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Part us with Thy fear in our hearts and Thy blessing upon our lives. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.